0: to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, chapters six and seven. In the previous chapters, the crew of the Abraham Lincoln had just come across the sea monster they'd been looking for. In the following chapters, The crew have a perilous encounter with the creature. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy And your breath soften As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep six at full steam at this cry the whole ship's crew hurried towards the harpooner commander officers masters sailors cabin boys even the engineers left their engines and the stokers their furnaces The order to stop her had been given, and the frigate now simply went on by her own momentum. The darkness was then profound, and however good the Canadian's eyes were, I asked myself how he managed to see, and what he had been able to see. My heart beat as if it would break. But Ned Land was not mistaken, and we all perceived the object he pointed to. At two cables' length from the Abraham Lincoln, on the starboard quarter, the sea seemed to be illuminated all over. It was not a mere phosphoric phenomenon. The monster emerged some fathoms from the water and then threw out the very intense but inexplicable light mentioned in the report of several captains. This magnificent irradiation must have been produced by an agent of great shining powder. The luminous part traced on the sea an immense oval, much elongated, the center of which condensed a burning heat, whose overpowering brilliance died out with successive gradations. "'It is only an agglomeration of phosphoric particles,' cried one of the officers. "'No, sir, certainly not,' I replied." Never did folate or Salpe produce such a powerful light. That brightness is of an essentially electrical nature. Besides, see, see, it moves. It is moving forwards, backwards, it is starting towards us. A general cry rose from the frigate. Silence, said the captain. Up with the helm. Reverse the engines. The steam was shut off, and the Abraham Lincoln, beating to port, described a semicircle. Right the helm... Go ahead, cried the captain. These orders were executed, and the frigate moved rapidly from the burning light. I was mistaken. She tried to sheer off, but the supernatural animal approached with a velocity double her own. We gasped for breath stupefaction more than fear made us dumb and motionless the animal gained on us sporting with the waves it made the round of the frigate which was then making 14 knots and enveloped it with its electrical rings like luminous dust then it moved away two or three miles leaving a phosphorescent track like those volumes of steam that the express trains leave behind all at once from the dark line of the horizon whither it retired to gain its momentum the monster rushed suddenly towards the abraham lincoln with alarming rapidity stopped suddenly about twenty feet from the hull, and died out. Not diving under the water, for its brilliancy did not abate, but suddenly, as if the source of this brilliant emanation was exhausted. Then it reappeared on the other side of the vessel, as if it had turned and slid under the hull. Any moment a collision might have occurred which would have been fatal to us. However, I was astonished at the maneuvers of the frigate. She fled and did not attack. On the captain's face, generally so impassive was an expression of unaccountable astonishment. Mr. Aranax, he said, I do not know with what formidable being I have to deal, and I will not imprudently risk my frigate in the midst of this darkness. Besides, how attack this unknown thing? How defend oneself from it? Wait for daylight, and the scene will change. You have no further doubt, Captain, of the nature of this animal. No, sir, it is evidently a gigantic narwhal, and an electric one at that. Perhaps, added I. One can only approach it with a gymnotus or a torpedo. Undoubtedly, replied the captain, if it possesses such dreadful power, it is the most terrible animal that ever was created. This is why, sir, I must be on my guard. The crew were on their feet all night, no one thought of sleep. The Abraham Lincoln, not being able to struggle with such velocity, had moderated its pace and sailed at half speed. For its part, the Narwhal, imitating the frigate, let the waves rock it at will, and seemed decided not to leave the scene of struggle. Towards midnight, however, it disappeared, or, to use a more appropriate term, it died out like a large glowworm. Had it fled, one could only fear, not hope. But at seven minutes to one o'clock in the morning, a deafening whistle was heard, like that produced by a body of water, rushing with great violence. The captain, Ned Land, and I were then on the poop, eagerly peering through the profound darkness. Ned Land, asked the commander, you have often heard the roaring of whales often, but never such whales the sight of which brought me in $2,000, if I can only approach within four harpoons length of it. But to approach it, said the commander, I ought to put a whaler at your disposal. Certainly, sir. "'That will be trifling with the lives of my men. "'And mine too,' simply said the harpooner. "'Towards two o'clock in the morning, "'the burning light reappeared, "'not less intense, "'about five miles to the windward of the Abraham Lincoln. "'Notwithstanding the distance,' And the noise of the wind and sea. One heard distinctly the loud strokes of the animal's tail, and even its panting breath. It seemed that at the moment the enormous narwhal had come to take breath at the surface of the water, the air was engulfed in its lungs, like the steam in the vast cylinders. Of a machine of two thousand horsepower hum thought i a whale with the strength of a cavalry regiment would be a pretty whale we were on the key vive till daylight and prepared for the combat the fishing implements were laid along the hammock nettings The second lieutenant loaded the blunderbusses, which could throw a harpoon to the distance of a mile, and long duck guns with explosive bullets, which inflicted mortal wounds even to the most terrible animals. Ned Land contented himself with sharpening his harpoon, a terrible weapon in his hands, At six o'clock, day began to break, and with the first glimmer of light, the electric light of the narwhal disappeared. At seven o'clock, the day was sufficiently advanced, but a very thick sea fog obscured our view, and the best spy glasses could not pierce it. That caused disappointment, and anger. I climbed the mizzen mast. Some officers were already perched on the mast heads. At eight o'clock, the fog lay heavily on the waves, and its thick scrolls rose little by little. The horizon grew wider and clearer at the same time. Suddenly, just as on the day before, Netland's voice was heard. The thing itself, on the port quarter, cried the harpooner. Every eye was turned towards the point indicated. There. A mile and a half from the frigate a long blackish body emerged a yard above the waves its tail violently agitated produced a considerable eddy never did a caudal appendage beat the sea with such violence an immense track of dazzling whiteness marked the passage of the animal and described a long curve. The frigate approached the cetacean. I examined it thoroughly. The reports of the Shannon and of the Helvetia had rather exaggerated its size, and I estimated its length at only 250 feet. As to its dimensions, I could only conjecture them to be admirably proportioned. While I watched this phenomenon, two jets of steam and water rejected from its vents and rose to the height of a hundred and twenty feet. Thus I ascertained its way of breathing. I concluded definitely that it belonged to the vertebrae branch, class Mammalia. The crew waited impatiently for their chief's orders. The latter, after having observed the animal attentively, called the engineer. The engineer ran to him. Sir, said the commander. You have steam up? "'Yes, sir,' answered the engineer. "'Well, make up your fires and put on all steam.'" Three hurrahs greeted this order. The time for the struggle had arrived. Some moments after, the two funnels of the frigate vomited torrents of black smoke and the bridge quaked under the trembling of the boilers. The Abraham Lincoln, propelled by her wonderful screw, went straight at the animal. The latter allowed it to come within half a cable's length. Then, as if disdaining to dive, it took a little turn and stopped a short distance off. This pursuit lasted nearly three quarters of an hour, without the frigate gaining two yards on the cetacean. It was quite evident that at that rate we should never come up with it. Well, Mr. Land, asked the captain. Do you advise me to put the boats out to sea? No, sir, replied Nedland, because we shall not take that beast easily. What shall we do, then? Put on more sea if you can, sir. With your leave, I mean to post myself under the bowsprit." and if we get within harpooning distance, I shall throw my harpoon. Go, Ned, said the captain. Engineer, put on more pressure. Ned Land went to his post. The fires were increased. The screw revolved 43 times a minute, and the steam poured out of the valves. We heaved the log and calculated that the Abraham Lincoln was going at the rate of 18 and a half miles an hour. But the accursed animal swam too at the rate of 18 and a half miles an hour. For a whole hour, The frigate kept up this pace, without gaining six feet. It was humiliating for one of the swiftest sailors in the American Navy. A stubborn anger seized the crew. The sailors abused the monster, who, as before, disdained to answer them. The captain no longer contented himself with twisting his beard. He gnawed it. The engineer was again called. You have turned false demon? Yes, sir, replied the engineer. The speed of the Abraham Lincoln increased... Its mast trembled down to their stepping holes, and the clouds of smoke could hardly find way out of the narrow funnels. They heaved the log a second time. Well, asked the captain of the man at the wheel. Nineteen miles and three tenths, sir. Clap on more steam. The engineer obeyed. The manometer showed 10 degrees. But the cetacean grew warm itself, no doubt. For without straining itself, it made 19 and 3 tenths miles. What a pursuit! No. I cannot describe the emotion that vibrated through me. Ned Land kept his post, harpoon in hand. Several times the animal let us gain upon it. We shall catch it. We shall catch it, cried the Canadian. But just as he was going to strike, the cetacean stole away with a rapidity that could not be estimated at less than 30 miles an hour. And even during our maximum of speed, it bullied the frigate. Going round and round it, a cry of fury broke from everyone. At noon, we were no further advanced than at eight o'clock in the morning. The captain then decided to take more direct means. Ah, said he, that animal goes quicker than the Abraham Lincoln. Very well, we will see whether it will escape these conical bullets. Send your men to the forecastle, sir. The forecastle gun was immediately loaded and slew round. But the shot passed some feet above the cetacean, which was half a mile off. Another, more to the right, cried the commander. And five dollars to whoever will hit that infernal beast. An old gunner with a grey beard, that I can see now, with steady eye and grave face, went up to the gun and took a long aim. A loud report was heard, with which were mingled the cheers of the crew. The bullet did its work. It hit the animal, but not fatally and sliding off the rounded surface was lost in two miles depth of sea. The chase began again and the captain, leaning towards me, said, I will pursue that beast till my frigate bursts up. Yes, answered I, and you will be quite right to do it I wished the beast would exhaust itself, and not be insensible to fatigue like a steam engine. But it was no use. Hours passed without its showing any sign of exhaustion. However, it must be said in praise of the Abraham Lincoln that she struggled on indefatigably I cannot reckon the distance she made under 300 miles during this lucky day, November the 6th. But night came on and overshadowed the rough ocean. Now I thought our expedition was at an end and that we should never again see the extraordinary animal. I was mistaken. At ten minutes to eleven in the evening, the electric light reappeared three miles to the windward of the frigate, as pure, as intense as during the preceding night. The narwhal seemed motionless, perhaps tired with its day's work. It slept letting itself float with the undulations of the waves. Now was a chance of which the captain resolved to take advantage. He gave his orders. The Abraham Lincoln kept up half-steam and advanced cautiously so as to not awaken its adversary. It is no rare thing to meet in the middle of the ocean whales so sound asleep that they can be successfully attacked. And Ned Land had harpooned more than one during its sleep. The Canadian went to take his place again under the bowsprit. The frigate approached noiselessly stopped at two cables length from the animal and following its track no one breathed a deep silence reigned on the bridge we were not a hundred feet from the burning focus the light of which increased and dazzled our eyes at this moment Leaning on the forecastle bulwark, I saw below me Ned Land grappling the martingale in one hand, brandishing his terrible harpoon in the other, scarcely twenty feet from the motionless animal. Suddenly, his arm straightened, and the harpoon was thrown I heard the sonorous stroke of the weapon, which seemed to have struck a hard body. The electric light went out suddenly, and two enormous water spouts broke over the bridge of the frigate, rushing like a torrent from the stem to stern, overthrowing men and breaking the lashings of the spars. A fearful shock followed, and, thrown over the rail without having time to stop myself, I fell into the sea. Chapter 7 An Unknown Species of Whale This unexpected fall so stunned me that I have no clear recollection of my sensations at the time. I was at first drawn down to a depth of about twenty feet. I am a good swimmer, though without pretending to rival Byron or Edgar Poe, who were masters of the art. And in that plunge, I did not lose my presence of mind. Two vigorous strokes brought me to the surface of the water. My first care was to look for the frigate. Had the crew seen me disappear? Had the Abraham Lincoln veered round? Would the captain put out a boat? Might I hope to be saved? The darkness was intense. I caught a glimpse of a black mass disappearing in the east, its beacon lights dying out in the distance. It was the frigate. I was lost. Help, help, I shouted, swimming towards the Abraham Lincoln in desperation. My clothes encumbered me, They seemed glued to my body and paralyzed my movements. I was sinking. I was suffocating. Help. This was my last cry. My mouth filled with water. I struggled against being drawn down to the abyss. Suddenly... My clothes were seized by a strong hand, and I felt myself quickly drawn up to the surface of the sea. And I heard, yes, I heard these words pronounced in my ear. If Master would be so good as to lean on my shoulder, Master would swim with much greater ease." I seized with one hand my faithful concierge's arm. Is it you? said I. You? Myself, answered concierge. And waiting master's orders. That shock threw you as well as me into the sea. No. But being in Master's service, I followed him. The worthy fellow thought that it was but natural. And the frigate? I asked. The frigate? replied Concier, turning on his back. I think that Master had better not count too much on her. You think so? I say that at the time I threw myself into the sea, I heard the men at the wheel say, The screw and the rudder are broken. Broken? Yes, broken by the monster's teeth. It is the only injury the Abraham Lincoln has sustained, but it is a bad lookout for us. She no longer answers her helm. Then we are lost. Perhaps so, calmly answered Concier. However, we still have several hours before us, and one can do a good deal in some hours. Concier's imperturbable coolness set me up again. I swam more vigorously, but, cramped by my clothes, which stuck to me like a leaden weight, I felt great difficulty in bearing up. Concier saw this. "'Will Master let me make a slit?' said he, and, slipping an open knife under my clothes, he ripped them up from top to bottom very rapidly." Then he cleverly slipped them off me while I swam for both of us. Then I did the same for Concier, and we continued to swim near to each other. Nevertheless, our situation was no less terrible. Perhaps our disappearance had not been noticed, and if it had been, the frigate could not tag being without its helm. Concier argued on this supposition and laid his plans accordingly. This phlegmatic boy was perfectly self-possessed. We then decided that, as our only chance of safety was being picked up by the Abraham Lincoln's boats, we ought to manage so as to wait for them as long as possible." I resolved then to husband our strength, so that both should not be exhausted at the same time. And this is how we managed. While one of us lay on our back, quite still, with arms crossed and legs stretched out, the other would swim and push the other on its front, This towing business did not last more than ten minutes each, and relieving each other thus, we could swim on for some hours, perhaps till daybreak. Poor chance, but hope is so firmly rooted in the heart of man. Moreover, there were two of us. Indeed, I declared, though it may seem improbable, If I sought to destroy all hope, if I wished to despair, I could not. The collision of the frigate with the cetacean had occurred about eleven o'clock the evening before. I reckoned then that we should have eight hours to swim before sunrise, an operation quite practicable if we relieved each other. The sea, very calm, was in our favor. Sometimes I tried to pierce the intense darkness that was only dispelled by the phosphorescence caused by our movements. I watched the luminous waves that broke over my hand, whose mirror-like surface was spotted with silvery rings. One might have said, We were in a bath of quicksilver. Near one o'clock in the morning, I was seized with dreadful fatigue. My limbs stiffened under the strain of violent cramp. Concier was obliged to keep me up, and our preservation devolved on him alone. I heard the poor boy pant. His breath became short and hurried. I found that he could not keep up much longer. Leave me, leave me, I said to him. Leave my master? Never, replied he. I would drown first. Just then... The moon appeared through the fringes of a thick cloud, that the wind was driving to the east. The surface of the sea glittered with its rays. This kindly light reanimated us. My head got better again. I looked at all points of the horizon. I saw the frigate. She was five miles from us and looked like a dark mass, hardly discernible, but no boats. I would have cried out, but what good would it have been at such a distance? My swollen lips could utter no sounds. Concier could articulate some words, and I heard him repeat at intervals, Help, help. Help our movements were suspended for an instant we listened it might be only a singing in the ear but it seemed to me as if a crying answered the cry from concier did you hear i murmured yes yes and Concierge gave one more despairing call. This time, there was no mistake. A human voice responded to ours. Was it the voice of another unfortunate creature, abandoned in the middle of the ocean? Some other victim of the shock sustained by our vessel? Or rather, was it a boat from the frigate that was hailing us in the darkness? Concier made a last effort, and, leaning on my shoulder while I struck out in a despairing effort, he raised himself half out of the water, then fell back exhausted. What did you see? I saw, murmured he. I saw, but do not talk. Reserve all your strength. What had he seen? Then, I know not why, the thought of the monster came into my head for the first time but that voice. The time is past for Jonas to take refuge in whales' bellies. However, Concier was towing me again. He raised his head sometimes, looked before us, and uttered a cry of recognition, which was responded to by a voice that came nearer and nearer. I scarcely heard it. My strength was exhausted. My fingers stiffened. My hand afforded me support no longer. My mouth convulsively open, filled with salt water. Cold crept over me. I raised my head for the last time. Then I sank At this moment, a hard body struck me. I clung to it. Then I felt that I was being drawn up. That I was brought to the surface of the water. That my chest collapsed. I fainted. It is certain that I soon came to. Thanks to the vigorous rubbings that I received, I half opened my eyes. Concier, I murmured. Does Master call me? asked Concier. Just then, by the waning light of the moon which was sinking down to the horizon, I saw a face... Which was not Concierge, and which I immediately recognized. Ned, I cried. The same, sir, who is seeking his prize, replied the Canadian. Were you thrown into the sea by the shock of the frigate? Yes, Professor. But more fortunate than you, I was able to find a footing almost directly upon a floating island. An island? Or, more correctly speaking, our gigantic narwhal. Explain yourself, Ned. Only I soon found out why my harpoon had not entered its skin and was blunted. Why, Ned? Why? Because, Professor, that beast is made of sheet iron. The Canadian's last words produced a sudden revolution in my brain. I wriggled myself quickly to the top of the being, or object, half out of the water, which served us for a refuge. I kicked it. It was evidently a hard, impenetrable body, and not the soft substance that forms the bodies of the great marine mammalia but this hard body might be a bony carapace, like that of the antediluvian animals, and I should be free to class this monster among the amphibious reptiles, such as tortoises or alligators. Well, no. The blackish back that supported me was smooth, polished without scales the blow produced a metallic sound and incredible though it may be it seemed i might say as if it was made of riveted plates there was no doubt about it this monster this natural phenomenon that had puzzled the learned world and overthrown and misled the imagination of seamen of both hemispheres, it must be owned. A still more astonishing phenomenon, inasmuch as it was simply a human construction. We had no time to lose, however. We were lying upon the back of a sort of submarine boat which appeared, as far as I could judge, like a huge fish of steel. Ned Land's mind was made up on this point. Concier and I could only agree with him. Just then, a bubbling began at the back of this strange thing, which was evidently propelled by a screw, and it began to move. We had only just time to seize hold of the upper part, which rose about seven feet out of the water. And happily, its speed was not great. As long as it sails horizontally, muttered Land. I do not mind. But if it takes a fancy to dive, I would not give two straws for my life. The Canadian might have said still less. It became really necessary to communicate with the beings. Whatever they were, shut up inside the machine. I searched all over the outside for an aperture, a panel, or a manhole, to use a technical expression. But the lines of the iron rivets... Solidly driven into the joints of the iron plates were clear and uniform. Besides, the moon disappeared then, and left us in total darkness. At last, this long night passed. My indistinct remembrance prevents my describing all the impressions it made. I can only recall one circumstance, during some lulls of the wind and sea, I fancied I heard several times vague sounds, a sort of fugitive harmony produced by words of command. What was then the mystery of this submarine craft, of which the whole world vainly sought an explanation? What kind of beings existed in this strange boat? What mechanical agent caused its prodigious speed? Daybreak appeared. The morning mist surrounded us but they soon cleared off. I was about to examine the hull, which formed on deck a kind of horizontal platform when I felt it gradually sinking. Oh, confound it, cried Nedland, kicking the resounding plate. Open, you inhospitable rascals. Happily, the sinking movement ceased. Suddenly, a noise, like ironworks violently pushed aside, came from the interior of the boat. One iron plate was moved. A man appeared, uttered an odd cry and disappeared immediately. Some moments after, eight strong men with masked faces appeared noiselessly and drew us down into their formidable machine.